Hello there, and welcome to the Tennis Abstract Podcast, episode 22. This is a special episode for us because it is the first episode I'm recording with a guest co-host. My co-host this week is Petter Vetz. Welcome, Petter. Yes, um, hello from Austria. It's my first time here, and it's a pleasure to be on this podcast for the first and maybe not the last time. We will see. <laughs> we'll see how this one goes, right? Um, Petter is one of our few listeners, so the one danger in having co-hosts uh, like him is it does reduce our potential listener numbers, but we're willing to take that risk for some quality recordings. Um, for those of you who are big Carl Bialik fans, I, of course, am as well, and he'll be back recording some episodes soon as well. But for this week, since we do have Petter with us, he's, he's more of an ATP guy than a WTA guy. I think that's fair to say. Um, so let's dive into the Davis Cup. We had a big week with the Davis Cup quarterfinals, and we also have the various format proposals to discuss. Carl and I touched on that a little bit in one of our last episodes, but we didn't really dig in, and that is one of the big topics in tennis these days. So I want to, I want to do a bit of a dive into the, the idea of what the proposals are and what we think about them and so on. But let's start with the tennis. And I think the biggest story from the Davis Cup quarterfinals this past weekend is the Spain-Germany tie in which Rafael Nadal made his triumphant comeback. This was his first match in quite a while, and, or his first two matches, I guess. And he destroyed Alexander Zverev on the, the third day of, of the tie. And, and Petzer, let's start talking about Nadal. Do you think this is a sign that he's going to be his his typical dominating self on clay courts? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure um, what, what to think about this. I mean, I, I just looked at some highlights on, on YouTube from the match and he was really pumped when, and as he is always in Davis Cup and I'm not... 100% sure if this if this uh, trans will translate into the normal ATP tour, and um, in, I'm also not up to speed what his injuries are about. So if he's re really 100% uh, fit, but I think he wouldn't have played if he wouldn't be 100% fit. So I, if I would have to to bet some money on on his performance in the upcoming clay court season, I would definitely uh, count on him. And I, I think he will be uh, a big, big danger on clay courts and win uh, some titles for sure. And he, he, he seems to not have any big opponents because Roger Federer, as, as far as I know, isn't playing. Is, is, is not playing this clay court season. So I, I think um, um, that he will will have a lot of of potential in getting into this clay court season. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree. Um, he, he, of course, we don't know about the injuries. That's that's always the tough part when judging a player in this kind of situation. But like you say, there's not a, a, an obvious an obvious contender against him. I mean, one of the names that might have come up is Alexander Zverev. I mean, he he won a clay court Masters this time last year, and he, he's one of the best young players around. But I mean, at least. In yesterday's match, he couldn't compete with Nadal on clay, not even close. And as you say, Federer's out, so without him in the tournaments, that's one other contender Nadal doesn't have to worry about. And really, um, the na a name who didn't play Davis Cup this weekend, who we have to put in this conversation, is Dominic Thiem, as someone who could potentially be a threat to Nadal. I mean, he, he, played, he played Nadal tough during, during the clay court season last year. 
Um, and as, as I wrote on the Tennis Abstract blog, I believe a month or two ago, he is one of the clay court specialists on tour. I mean, he, he might be the second best clay quarter on the ATP tour after it at all. I mean, there's a big gap there, but he, he's still your presumptive number two, I think. Um, Pedro, I know you've followed team pretty closely over the years, being an Austrian. Um, what do you think about that? Do you, do you think that the team is your number two guy on clay? Do you think maybe he could upset Nadal and claim one of these Masters tournaments? I mean, if you ask me this way, if he can upset Nadal, I think the, the answer is definitely yes. As we've already seen last season, and as you've already mentioned, also his, his um, clay court specific ELO is, is really high, as you have written in your article, especially um, compared to his hardcourt ELO and grass ELO. And I think that's what definitely makes him dangerous, um, especially he can be a player who is up to speed with uh, Rafael. And I think that the big question mark here is that Dominic team is currently injured. So uh, as most of the listeners will know, he had to um, retire in Miami. So he, he, he's, he, he, he injured himself in, in, in the match against Pablo Cuevas. And he didn't touch a racket in the past few, few days and weeks. And I, I, I think he posted a lengthy statement on Facebook. I didn't read it completely, but he tries to be back at uh, Monte Carlo. So there's also still a question mark for Monte Carlo, which of course is, uh, uh, um, wouldn't, would be uh, really bad if he misses this one. And because the clay court season is where he earns most of his points. So there's the question mark. Will he be up to his typical clay court level? And if yes, I think he has a chance against Nadar. But if not, the, it's, it's really tough. And um, as I'm looking on the, on the current life rankings and thinking about who could be a threat to Nadar, I think uh, one name we should definitely mention here is uh, Juan Martin Del Potro. I don't know if you wanted to mention him anyway, but I will take it away. So he had this winning streak recently, which was on, on hard court, as we know, but I think he had 15 straight wins or 17, I'm not sure. But anyway, he's, he's, he's I think, definitely number two, maybe behind Dominic Team to be a a big threat on, on, on the clay court this season. Yeah that's, yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought him up. I, I had, it's easy to forget about him in clay court discussions because he, he, for one thing, he's injured so much that it's easy to forget about him in general when he hasn't just won so many matches. But this would be a really bad time to forget about Juan Martin Del Potro. Um, when you think about his game style, you think more hard courts. Of course, his biggest successes have been on hard courts. But... He's got a lot in common with Robin Soderling, just the, the, the game style, the, the type of successes that he's had over the years. So I believe Carl and I talked about this on a past podcast as well, that um, he doesn't have a clay court specific game, but the type of game he plays, he's able to use the angles on his serve. Obviously, he, he can do anything with that forehand and get some really nasty angles there. He's comfortable playing very deep in the court. Um, I, I think he's a little better defensive player than people give him credit for. So you wouldn't exactly bet on him at Roland Garros, but at the same time, 
when, as, as we're saying, a lot of the usual suspects are, are out of the picture. So after Nadal and team, yeah, I think he's definitely in the conversation. It'll be interesting to see how, he, how much he plays. I believe he's said he's going to play a, a reduced clay court schedule, so he probably won't be in Monte Carlo. Maybe we'll just see him in Madrid, Rome, and Roland Garros, or maybe not even that much. But, but yeah, and anywhere he chooses to play, I think we should look at him as a big threat. Uh, one more name, actually, probably more than one more name, but, but another name to discuss is, is one of my favorites, Diego Schwartzman. Uh, one of my, my favorite little tidbits from Nadal's clay court season last year was in Monte Carlo, he just destroyed the field. I mean, it was, he got a pretty easy draw. That's the tournament where he ended up playing Albert Ramos in the final and won that match easily. But the, the toughest match he played, I believe, in Monte Carlo was against Diego Schwartzman. It wasn't super close. It was four and four, I believe. But still, Schwartzman can he can play on clay. He was able to stay pretty much in touch with Rafa. Um, of course, he's he's a pretty small guy. He's he doesn't really have the firepower to compete with Rafa. But do you think, Petra, is there is there a chance that in a best of three match we could see Schwartzman come up with a big win and upset Rafa? <laughs> Yeah, there's always a chance. The, the, the question is how, how big is it? So um, to quantify it, um, I mean, that's that's a shot in the dark, but I think he, he can push Rafa to a deciding set, definitely, yes. I mean, there's there's always the chance to, to take away a set from, from Rafa, um, especially for Diego. I mean, we know he can play on hard courts, and that's that's... Definitely, where he feels where he feels good and where he can apply his his game style, even though he's not the tallest guy as we know, but he's as we also know one of the best returners if we account for competition. So I would I would say Diego is uh, one to, to count on on the clay court season, which, as I've also looked a bit further further down the rankings, brings me to another guy who who. who come up who maybe can be a threat for Rafa. I mean, it's funny, we, all, we only look through the rankings and, and try to find a player who can be maybe a threat to Rafa. That's the only, the most, seems to be the most important thing for the upcoming clay season. And I think really that's the way it is. Um, and, and the player I wanted to bring up is Fabio Fonini. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not, not the most consistent guy, but especially in Rome, where he beat Andy Murray last year, which was a match I, I like to think about uh, in regular, uh, regularly. So, I mean, Fabio in front of home crowd, if he has a good day, I think... I mean, it depends on the draw, obviously, if he even will, will, will um, play against Rafa and if Fabio is always... He can win or lose against anybody. But I, I just remembered and it came up in my head that he, he um, won. I think he's one of the few players who has two wins against um, Rafa on clay court. So that's one thing. Dominic Thiem is another one. So that's something. And yeah, I mean, that's just also a shot in the dark. But I think if Fabio on any good day, maybe in front of the home crowd, and the home masters can, could also potentially be a threat. There are still many other players who could also be, of course. 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Fanini. As, as you say, he's had some success against it all in the past. And I think that's another case where the, his style of play or his tactical approach is, it accounts for some of it because he's able to play close to the baseline when he wants to. He's able to take balls on the rise. He forces opponents to, to respond that much quicker. And that's if Rafa has a weakness, which is arguable. Um, if he does have a weakness, that might be it, that... He, he likes to have time. Um, he, he doesn't like players bossing him around. So that, that's how Soderling ended up knocking him off. That's how you can imagine an aggressive Del Potro beating him, even if Del Potro tends to be a little bit um, relaxed or, or laid back as well. But Fanini does play close to the baseline. Um, he would keep Rafa off balance, which I think is how he's beaten him in the past. And, and as you say, the home crowd in Italy might, might make the difference. Uh, as you also say, it depends on the draw. It's really tough to imagine Fanini making it all the way to that final if that's where he has to go to beat Nadal. Uh, it's it's certainly possible that he's going to pull a big upset in the second or third round, but and it, it's it's tough to see him stringing together four or five wins that he would need to get to the final or win the tournament at his home Masters. Um, but yeah, those are, are definitely some some names to watch. We've already gotten pretty far off track with um, with our discussion of Nadal and just one of the four quarterfinals. I don't really need to go blow by blow through all four of the World Group quarterfinals, but I do want to talk a little bit about how the draw shapes up from here on out. And one of the things you mentioned that I wanted to follow up, follow up on was the fact that Nadal chose to play this week. Uh, he's He has a reputation as someone who doesn't play Davis Cup very much. I know I, I ran the numbers on that maybe five years ago or something, so the numbers I have aren't particularly current, but it basically bore that out. He doesn't play Davis Cup that much um, compared to other players, but he did choose to play. Um, I don't know whether we should expect him to continue to play, but he would certainly be a big factor in the semifinal against France. I mean, France has so many quality players, not anyone of Nadal's caliber, of course, but if, if Nadal doesn't play, then you have to look at France as probably a small favorite, if not a big one, depending on how those rosters shake out. You know, what do you think about that, Petter? Do you, do you think that um, that without Nadal, does, does Spain have a chance in in that tie? I mean, or I, you're going to say yes, of course they have a chance because you think about things uh, probabilistically like I do. Um, so, so let's say let's put it this way. I'll ask a question that's more up our alleys. If, if Nadal doesn't play, what do you think the odds are that that France wins that semifinal tie against Spain? Um, first question is, do, do you know who who has the home advantage in this tie? Yep, France has the home advantage. Okay, so okay, they will probably not choose clay as a surface. I, I assume, yeah, probably not. I assume yes. So I, I would I would give I would give France a chance. Bigger than fifty percent, let's put it this way. So I would make them the favorite, even. I mean, it heavily yeah, depends I'd... on the on the on the team they will will bring to the Davis Cup for both uh, for France and Spain, obviously. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm pretty sure they will um, choose hard court as the surface. And when I think about the players fr uh, that can play for France, I think. They have a really a deep roster of players, as has Spain, obviously. But I think for hardcore, um, I would definitely make France the favorite for this tie. 
Yeah, I think uh, Luca Pui is, is playing great tennis. And you know, one guy who we don't talk about very much anymore, but who I've always loved is Gilles Simone. I just a, maybe a month or so ago, I, I finally watched the, the final from Poon, the first week of the season, when it was Simone versus Kevin Anderson. And Simone won that match in three, I think. And it was just an absolute masterclass in returning. Uh, the, the most amazing stat from that match was Simone returned a higher percentage of Anderson's first serves than Anderson returned of his. And, and Simone was, he wasn't, I don't think he was even trying to hit big first serves. He was, he was kind of rolling it in. And Anderson was still missing a lot of serves. But Simone was getting like 70, 75% of Anderson's serves back on a hard court, which is just, just unbelievable. And it, it, if you watch Gilles Simone on a day like that when he's not hitting big serves, he, he wasn't really doing anything. He wasn't showing any fireworks, I guess. He, he was doing more subtle things impressively. Um, you wonder how, how he ended up falling so far in the rankings, how he never climbed higher than, I think, his peak of number six. At this point, you can't really expect him to, to bounce back and make any big waves. But as you say, the roster that France has to call in is so deep. Depending on who's healthy, you've got Gasquet and Sanga and, and Simone, and I'm saying, and you pretty much have to look at Luca Pui as our number one guy right now, uh, a solid option. So they're the number one seed based on their performance last year and in the past. And it, it's tough to see them being at least heavy underdogs against anybody. I mean, some other team could show up with, with two players who you know, have a really good weekend and beat them. But like you say, the roster, the roster is deep. They're always going to be able to put a really solid doubles team on the court. Uh, and that's that's usually enough to win. Um, let's talk about the other semifinal between Croatia and the U.S. Uh, Croatia had a pretty easy route. The U.S. beat Belgium 4 to nothing, and they didn't even have, even have to play David Goffin. So it was pretty easy for both of them, but it's going to be tougher in the next round. Um, tell me, Petr, how do you see that one shaping up? You've got a, you've got a good Croatian team with Cilic and Koric. Um, the U.S. has several good players they can draw on. What, what would you put the odds at there? Okay, let me let me give it a try. Um, I would. Okay, Croatia. I mean, it depends. I would. I think I would make this a 50-50 one. I don't know. I have to admit how good the doubles are for Croatia. So let me just look that up quickly. Okay, they have. Yeah, they are fairly good also in, in, in doubles, definitely. I mean, doubles is only one-fifth of, of Davis Cup, as we know, so that shouldn't be put too much weight on. And uh, as always, depending on, on who, will be actually, who will actually be playing, um, I think that's, that's more or less, I would give it a, a coin flip. <laughs> so I wouldn't, I wouldn't see a heavy favorite here. And yeah, I, w I would agree. Yeah. So what, what I w wanted to say even is that I think this year's Davis Cup winner will definitely, or more or less definitely, come from the, from the top half of the draw. So I think the, the Croatia-USA tie will be... It will look funny to see one of those two teams in the finals. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't deserve it, but yeah. Well, I, I, I hear you, and it, I might have... I might have landed at a similar opinion myself, but if you think about how, let, let's just take France and the US, for example. Let, let's say 
you're going to have a coin flip doubles match between between the U.S. and France. The France can show up with um, Mahou and and Herbert, which great team, but the Bryan brothers are also a great team. So call that a coin flip. And then let's say France brings Puy and Sanga. So two guys who are both probably like number 10 to number 15 quality guys. And let's say the U.S. brings Jack Sock and John Isner, Jack Sock and Sam Query, something like that. Uh, also guys who, according to current rankings, are like, pretty solid in that 10 to 15 range. I mean, I think Sock is even ranked in the top 10 right now. But, uh, but in, that, in that same range, and I think you're less likely to have an injury issue get in the way for the U.S. We, we, the guys we're talking about playing singles for the U.S. Ha haven't really missed much time to injury, and they're all kind of interchangeable with each other. And you could, any two out of Isner, Sock, and Query would give you roughly the same quality of play, I think. So what, what makes you think that, that France would have such a good shot over a U.S. team of, let's say, Brian Brothers and Query and Jack Sock? Um, maybe because I'm European. <laughs> no, just, <laughs> no, just kidding. I mean, what I wanted to touch on previously was also the fact that, that France heavily depends on their, their injuries or not injuries. So that's some point I wanted to add definitely because I was looking at the, the top France players currently and actually most of them have a, have a small, at least a small question mark besides the names because I think Songer is, is always at the risk of being injured as is uh, Richard, Richard Gasquet. He has constantly in, um, issues with, with his back. And Gaël Mofis, we know, all, also suffered a lot from injuries. So these are all top French players, but uh, currently maybe not injured, but always at the risk of, of being injured or having to, to retire from a tournament. So, I mean, if I would say if, if these players are, are at 100%, I would definitely make them a slight favorite against each of the, of the top players from the U.S. I, I think, did you say that Jack Sock is in the... Top ten currently. I'm not sure, but I was just looking up the life rankings. Yeah, actually, no. He's he's fallen a little bit. Yeah, I, but, I but didn't notice. He's down to 16. But but yeah. And, um, but just recently, I think. Yeah. Anyway, these these rankings won't won't be counting too much for the Davis Cup ties we are speaking about. Yeah, and and we are we are six months away, exactly. or maybe even seven months away from this potential match. So it, it it could be it could look very different at that point. But since I was looking up country rankings, I, I don't look at the live rankings page for a moment and tell me if, if who your guess is as the number two Frenchman because Luca Puy is currently ranked eleven and he's number one. Um, who do you think the number two Frenchman is right now? I would say it's Gasquet. Probably. It, Richard well, Gasquet is, pro is probably better than the actual French number two, as is Sanga, as is Malfis, and as is Simone. But your French number two right now is Adrian Manorino at number 25. Wow, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it, 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 and it kind of makes sense because, I mean, obviously it makes sense because it's an arbitrary ranking system, but uh, he, he did win two titles in the second half of last year, uh, the, or rather two finals. Sorry, I was getting a little carried away with my Manorino love, but he, he got to the final in Tokyo, uh, which is a 500. He got to the final in Antalya. He had a, 
uh, I I've looked at this a few times and I always forget that he's just consistently put together a few wins in a lot of places you wouldn't expect him to. So in, in, in third round at the last couple of slams, um, quarterfinals at the, the, the Canada Masters. So I mean, nothing really impressive, but you don't, you don't have to go and win Masters to be number 25 in the world. And that's apparently all it takes to be the French number two right now. Um, but on the topic of Davis Cup, I don't really think he would be a factor. I would be surprised if a French Davis Cup captain even put him on the team, as I, I think they, they generally haven't in the big ties. Um, so Yeah, I mean, just to, to touch on this, Adrian Manorino is really a player who falls under the radar regularly. I, I had... I was more or less forced to watch him last season because he played three times against Dominic Team, and I watched all of these matches and I, I remember it was always a struggle for Dominic. I mean, it, I think they only met on, on hard court, so there is all the, what is always a struggle for Dominic, as we know, but uh, yeah, Manorino is a dangerous lefty and I think he deserves the spot he's currently in in the rankings. He played a great uh, fall season last year, and yeah, he can be a threat. Yeah, well, one note before we, we leave the French Davis Cup team behind is, is, is just looking at the results. Uh, the, the second singles player behind Puy this last weekend was actually Jeremy Chardy. Um, I totally <laughs> forgot about that. I was so focused on all the bigger stars who weren't playing, but. That's another you know, pretty solid player, or even sticking in Julian Beneteau, um, probably not the best bet, but an another decent player who's available to them playing singles and also someone who could plug in as a very good doubles player. But since you brought up Manorino, um, or I brought up Manorino, since we're still talking about Manorino, I've got a question for you, Petra. I'm curious what your instinct is on this. Um, I, was, I wrote something years ago about lefties in tennis, and there's a, a bit of a Twitter debate about how much of an advantage left-handers have, just, just by virtue of being left-handed, just having something to offer that their opponents don't see very often. And a former player who, I'm not sure if he would want to have his name named in connection with this, so I won't say his name, but a former player said to me, like, it's, it's such a huge advantage to be left-handed. Look at someone like Adrian Manorino. If he weren't left-handed, he wouldn't even be in the top 100. And at that point, this was a few years ago, so this is before Manorino was a top 30 guy. But at the time, let's say he was, let's say he was number 50 or number 55. So uh, what do you think about that, Pedro? Do you think there's, uh, how much truth do you think there is in the fact that being left-handed for someone like Manorino gives him a big advantage? Um, first, um, this is really a great question. <laughs> I was just, as you formulated the question, thinking about how we could maybe try to quantify the advantage a lefty has in the game. And unfortunately, the, the issue is that there are not so many lefties, so that we always have this problem of sample size. So it will be probably hard to quantify this. Anyway, and to, to, to get back to your question, and another thing which came up to me is that uh, the most famous Austrian tennis player, Thomas Muster, is also a lefty. The only Austrian player who ever reached number one, and I was thinking about maybe, yeah, that also being a lefty was a big advantage for him. And another aspect is that I, for myself, am a, am a badminton player, which is also racket sports. Maybe some of you know, and I am also a lefty. And um, I 
can also speak about my own experience a little bit here, and it's it's definitely um, so. Let's let's um, answer this question from two perspectives. First, from my own perspective, and I, I know that I'm a competitive player, and I know that the f my biggest advantage is that the players I play for the first time don't realize that I'm a lefty, and that already gives me uh, a big advantage at the beginning of the game and even when at the point in time when they realize that I'm a lefty um, they still uh, didn't it's hard for them to change their game during the game so it's still even that they know that uh, even when they know that I'm a lefty they they have a hard time so and in, I think in professional sports it's probably the same so I mean, everyone knows that Adrian Manorino is a lefty before they start playing against him. That's that's obvious. But it's really tough to, to change your game, to adapt your game, even when you know that your opponent is a lefty. And because you all, always have these automatisms in, in your game, and it's, it's just tough to adapt to this. So the, the short answer is I, I definitely think that lefties have an advantage, but it depends on... Who is who is playing against the lefty? If you, if there is a smart player who can adapt quickly, I think the advantage is obviously smaller. But if there, I mean, Roger Federer, for instance, will will know how to play against Rafa. So Rafa, maybe he has the big advantage which he has because he can play this. Um, top spin forehands to the backhand side of, of Roger, so this will always be an advantage for him. Um, but also, on the other hand, Roger knows what's coming, so he can adapt to this again. So it's um, maybe a zero sum game if the players meet regularly, but most of the matchups in, on the ATP tour um, I think don't happen regularly. So Roger against Rafa happened often but there are many many other matchups that don't happen so often and I think especially in these cases the lefty uh, will have an advantage yeah I, I, that's a strong possibility and, and I think that the conventional wisdom is it agrees with what you're saying that there's some advantage to being left-handed obviously the the former player I was talking about he he felt pretty strongly that way. I, I somehow missed the opportunity to um, to point out that he got even more of an advantage from being really tall. Um, I believe this player is six five or six six. I'm really bad at converting to meters, so you'll have to just trust me that that's tall. Um, but I wonder how that compares, like to a couple of inches. If there is a lefty advantage, how it compares to the difference between being you know, two inches taller or four centimeters taller. But you, you mentioned the, the question of how we could possibly quantify that, and I, that's something I haven't thought about for a while, but did rack my brain over uh, some years ago. And I never really came up with anything, because it, with, with basic match stats and just a database full of results, then it, it's tough to know what when a player is winning because he's the better player, I mean, just because he hits his serve hard or hits with a lot of spin or this or that, and how much of that comes from being left-handed? Because you can't you can't isolate certain benefits of being left-handed as easily as you could say, Ivo Karlovic wins because he's tall, and you can look at his ace rate. I mean, that that's pretty easy. You can you could 
get a pretty good approximation of how much better players are based on, or how much of a gain you would get if you could magically make yourself taller just by getting more aces, more unreturned serves, and, and winning a higher percentage of service points. But what dawned on me as you were, were saying that is if we did have access to Hawkeye data, which of course is a, a big if for most of us, then you could get into things like amount of spin, the angle at which you can hit your shots, uh, the speed with which you can hit your shots. And if we could see that Adrian Manorino ranked number 25 and compare his Hawkeye data to whoever right-hander is ranked number 26 right now and see that Manorino, if we could somehow quantify all of the necessary parts of the game, like forehand speed, backhand speed, spin, all this stuff, that, that's a big that's a really big set of questions to answer. We're probably years away from the answers to those questions. But if we did have that data, it's theoretically possible to isolate all the things that make a tennis player good, and we could find out that maybe being left-handed is the equivalent of hitting your uh, hitting your forehand five kilometers an hour faster, or getting this much more spin on your serve, or something like that. So it is theoretically possible even if I think we'll have to wait a few years to get an answer. So we'll have to stick with the conventional wisdom for a little while longer. Yeah. I mean, something which also came to my mind, what could be an approach to, to isolate the, the advantage a lefty has, is that you beforehand, you try to think of um, how, what actual advantages does a lefty have against the righty. So the typical things are what Rafa is doing against Roger, hitting uh, topspin forehands onto his backhand side. Or another thing is um, the, the serve uh, far out on the, on the at, at court. That's also one thing the leftists like to do against righties. And what you then could do is try to quantify if, given that we have the Hawkeye data, if the player, the lefty, is making use of these advantages. So, Yeah, and, and, and that could be a proxy to saying, yeah, he, he makes use of the advantages the lefty has against the righty. If yes, then he probably really has an advantage. Maybe. Yeah, that, that, that. and that's even something we might not need Hawkeye data for, because if, if we just isolated simple tactics like that, like, like you say, like hitting a cross-court forehand, but having that go to a backhand instead, then if, if we just assumed all players were equal, which of course is incredibly untrue, but if we assumed every cross-court forehand were equal, we could look at the positive, the positive advantage of being able to hit a cross-court forehand to a righty's backhand most of the time. Uh, and, and I think even with just, just match charting project data as opposed to Hawkeye data, we could identify those cross-court forehands, what happens as a result of those cross-court forehands. It, I think it would be messy. Um, it, would, it would take a while to actually figure out what meaning you're getting from those numbers. But I think it is possible. That, that's a good point, since some of those tactics are so common from players, regardless of whether they're lefty or righty, what's, what general style of play they have. Almost everyone, every, every male player anyway, their cross-court forehand is going to be stronger than a cross-court backhand, for instance, or a, a up-the-middle shot or something. So. So yeah, I think, I think that points in the direction of something that could be useful. Um, before we switch into more general topics, Petra, I know you've, you've managed to digress a little bit into Austrian tennis. So let's, let's talk about this, this tie down in group one. 
this past weekend between Austria and Russia, which, as you, as you mentioned earlier, Dominic Team was injured in Miami. He didn't play, which is kind of shocking for everybody that, that tennis is happening, but Dominic Team is not playing. Um, so that meant that Austria didn't get to bring a very good team on paper. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, who, who these guys are, who <laughs> Austria managed to draft to play this week, and, and what ended up happening? Yeah, sure. I'd love to do that. Um, yeah, first, things, first thing is that it's always in Austria here in the media the question if Dominic Thiem is playing Davis Cup or not. So that's always the, the first big thing in the news is Dominic Thiem will be playing, everyone is happy. Uh, Dominic Thiem will not play, everyone uh, t- says that Dominic Thiem is not playing for his country and, and um, yeah, everyone is sad. And the thing is also that it seems that actually his coach, Günter Presnik, is, is making the decisions for him. So, yeah, there's always a lot of media buzz about if Dominic Thiem is playing or not, which is, which is funny always. Then, especially now in the case against Russia, um, it was also the case that our two top double players weren't able to play, uh, which is Alexander Peer and Oliver Marach. Um, we, we're both, so they're not a doubles team. Um, Oli Marach is playing with Mati Pavic and uh, Alex Peyer is playing with um, Mekdic. I don't know his first name right now. So Nikola. Nikola Mekdic, exactly. And they're both playing great seasons and, but, and they have played Davis Cup regularly, but um, yeah, they, they also couldn't play this week. So there was really the, the, the second tier players from Austria were playing in, in, in Russia and I also talked to myself and tried to say mm, uh, what will the result be like and I said there uh, I don't have any hope and then I was looking at the live scores and Dennis Novak won the first set against Andrei Rublev and um, then I was um, already um, stunned and <laughs> watching the live the video and yeah, what can I say? So Dennis Novak, I think he has one or two wins on the on the big ATP tour. Uh, I think his first win was last October in Vienna at the ATP 500. Um, and he regularly wins uh, futures, ITF futures in Turkey. But he maybe it's a bit the, defini- the definition of a journeyman. He's trying to get to speed at the, the challenger level, but I think he couldn't even reach a semi-final up until now. So, and currently also is ranked in, in the 200 sphere in the on the ATP rankings. So I didn't. Nobody expected anything uh, from him against Andrei Rublev, especially not playing in Russia. But then he he, he won the match. Um, I didn't watch the complete match, just the highlights. Uh, but he played a fairly good match. He, I mean, Andrei wasn't at his usual level. That's definitely something we have to say with complete honesty. But Dennis Novak is also known. I I watched many of his challenger matches. And he's someone who can, where you can see that he gets nervous if he has to serve out a set or even a match. And this time it really, I don't know, maybe because he didn't play at home, maybe because it was an away tie, that he didn't let the crowd, and he also didn't let the crowd get to him. 
that he could manage to, to play, to finish the match and um, get the win for Austria in the end. Um, then the second match was Sebastian Ofner um, against Daniel Medvedev. He um, lost 6-2, 6-1, if I remember correctly. I, I know that he made three games. And yeah, so after one day we had 1-1 one, one tied. And I think who really was, definitely was the match winner for Austria was Jürgen Melzer, who also he was by the Austrian team captain. He was called the, the choker. Uh, because, yeah, he, he didn't really play in the last few weeks. He suffered from a shoulder injury and um, had to do some surgery. And he's just coming back. But if he's asked if he wants to play Davis Cup, he always says yes. And I also uh, wrote a few months ago about uh, over- and underperforming players in Davis Cup. And I remember that Jürgen is actually someone who heavily underperforms in Davis Cup, so um, nobody really expected too much from him. Um, turns out that he uh, was able to win the tie more or less on his own. Um, from Jürgen we know he can play doubles and singles. He was top 10 in, in the doubles rankings a few years ago, to 2011. And also in, in, in he was top 8 in the, in the singles ranking. and. I think that's he. He was really very close to being qualified for the World Tour Finals for both singles and doubles. I don't know if there's a player who ever managed to do that. Probably there is, but Jürgen was pretty close. Anyway, so the doubles, um, as we also know, is was played best of three, which we'll come to in a bit. I think about the new rules in Group One and Group Two. Um, and yeah, Austria won the, the doubles, and then Jürgen had to play the singles on the same day, actually just a few, um, half an hour or one hour after the doubles match. And he was the big underdog because he hadn't really practiced the, the days, just the days before, because as I said, he just came back from his injury. And um, he played against Evgeny Donskoy, who is the... Funnily, the only um, who beat Roger Federer last year, as we all remember. And I, I watched the match, and Jürgen was really already uh, struggling with his... Uh, with his um, he was already tired from playing the doubles, and the, the singles match also went um, the distance. Um, but somehow, some way, um, he, he got the win, and yeah, it was incredible for Austria and now we are playing in the world group playoffs and nobody expected something like this to be honest and I also looked up the odds of, of Austria winning against Russia and I think it was 1 to 10 something like this so a 10% chance for Austria to win and I looked up um, also all the other ties that were played um, this weekend and it was the, the biggest upset um, by far so, yeah, that's that. Yeah, I, I believe it. It's, um, it, it. I'm not sure I would have. I would have even taken ten to one. I would have expected more extreme odds than that. But I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the fact that these were all best of three matches instead of best of five. I think if it had been best of five, the result could have been very different. I'm not sure whether Dennis Novak could have kept it up. Uh, 
obviously Jurgen Meltzer would have had a harder time coming back from winning the doubles and, and playing a singles match, even though he would have had a, a day to rest. Uh, so that it really ended up being a factor, I think, here, that it was best of three matches instead of best of five. Um, and that's one of the big factors in when, when we're talking about some of the proposals to change Davis Cup. I mean, it's already happening, as, as you see here, with, with best of three matches in group one and group two. Uh, but these are just minor changes compared to what the ITF has in mind. So... Let's, let's shift gears there and, and talk about what these proposals are. We, we've got a few different things on the table. The ITF has this grand plan for a once-a-year once World Cup-style uh, single venue playoff of, of, I think, 18 countries. And the ATP has also put forward some kind of tennis World Cup suggestion. And it, it, it seems like all of these things clash. Fans love Davis Cup, um, at least... Some fans, certainly both of the fans on this podcast, um, really like Davis Cup. And you have matches like the David Ferrer, Philip Kohlschreiber match that went to 7-5 in the fifth set and you know had all the fans and mothers crying at the end. So we're talking about sacrificing a lot of drama. We're talking about sacrificing a lot of... of of opportunities for fans to watch their players at home. Uh, there's, there's a lot of history and tradition in Davis Cup for the last hundred years, and all of a sudden we're talking about a pretty big shift. So, so Petra, what, what do you think? Let, let me ask you what maybe was a, a slightly harder question is, do you think there are any, any benefits? Like, is there a positive side to, to dropping the current Davis Cup format and just having a once-a-year World Cup of tennis? Yeah, I mean... You, you think, I think you already talked about this uh, with Carl a bit. And I think mm. I remember that, that getting money and drawing sponsors is maybe one thing, which is much easier if you make one big event out of it. And the other thing is, which is probably also the main intention here, is that the, 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 the top players are going to play or at least that's the expectation and that's always something that the Davis Cup suffered from that as we know that the, the top players weren't competing regularly and, and of course these are the players the fans want to see compete and I think that's the main intention here to get the top players to play Davis Cup I mean I, I see this but I'm still uh, I have a hard time seeing the, this World Cup style format really um, being a success for real tennis fans, and I, I again looked up the, the details on the on the format today. And uh, first, I want to say, really, I think the official name will be or should be a World Cup of Tennis Finals, which yeah sounds a bit strange to me, but maybe I'm the only one. And yeah, just for to to sum it up for the listeners quickly, it should will be played at the end of the tennis of the regular season in one location during over the course of seven days in a round-robin format and the top eight so 18 nations will play and the top eight will advance to a knockout stage and yeah the usual knockout stage will happen in the, in the last few days and there's still um, an approval required by the ITF board 
something like this, and they need a two-thirds majority, and this will happen in August. So it's not 100% safe that this will happen, but I'm not sure what the odds are. Maybe they already know that they will get the majority. There are already big financial deals happening in the background. So maybe that's just a formality, I don't know. And yeah, as I said, I think the main advantage could be that the top players will play, but I don't know if this this is really worth worth it. Yeah, it, and that is the big question always. And it, it seems like almost every move to change Davis Cup is with that stated intention to get the big players to play, which, of course, is really closely linked to the money because if you can get Federer and Nadal and whoever the next big stars are on court, then you know people will pay more to put their their company's name behind the court or in the advertisements between uh, between matches or between sets or whatever. So that's obviously the goal, but it does reveal what one of the overall problems is with tennis, and this is a, a favorite topic of Carl's, is this is, the ITF can't control very much of the schedule. So they're trying to do the best, well, they're trying to do something. They're trying to make the most money they can or something with, with the room they have on the tennis schedule, which isn't really very much because they have to work around the ATP and the WTA which already probably occupy 30 weeks of the year. So you, you, have, you have the Grand Slam, the four big tournaments that aren't going to move schedule-wise. I mean, you might be able to convince them to budge one week or so, but that's about as much as you can do. So you have to build around that, but all the players are already planning around peaking at the slams, uh, working the hardest at certain times of the year, trying to give themselves an off-season if they can. So if you're going to have this at the end of the season, you've got people aiming to peak for the US Open in September, and then peaking again, maybe the top players for the World Tour Finals in the beginning of November. And after that, like it, it, this past year has really revealed how, um, how fragile a bunch of players can be. I mean, who would have even played at the end of this past year? I mean it would have been an incredibly weak field with all the players who had suffered some kind of injury over the course of the season. I don't think Federer would have played with him trying to keep his schedule to a manageable minimum. So maybe this was just a bad year, and that's not a fair example to use 2017. But it, it, it's, it, it's difficult to imagine a bunch of top players showing up. It might be a little better than it is now, since we were discussing earlier how Nadal has missed so many ties, of course, Federer really only plays Davis Cup when he feels like it. But I'm, I'm not convinced at all that just having one event per year in November is going to convince guys to shorten their off-season by a week or two when they've really only got six to eight weeks to deal with in the first place. Mm. So, and I, I, I don't know how we could answer that kind of question um, without just trying the experiment and seeing who shows up. But, but that, uh, that is the difficulty. Uh, Another pet idea of Carl's that the more I think about it, the more I like, is is sort of like a, I'm not sure what the best word for this is, so call it like a, a World Cup that would be ITF sponsored, but maybe halfway between World Cup of Tennis and IPTL, the, the Indian Tennis League that is sort of floundering at this point. Because Carl really likes, the, he loves mixed doubles, he, he loves um, any kind of mixed gender tennis. He even suggested um, having women in the Labor Cup, which Federer has said might happen in a couple of years. Um, 
What do you think the what do you think the interest level from fans from players would be like if if there were a sort of global season-ending event, but it was co-ed, so you had something like World Team Tennis or IPTL, and you could attract the biggest stars. So maybe we could just say it's like a Hopman Cup to close out the season. Do you think that's something that would draw enough players to be interesting to sponsors? And you mean what would be the main difference to, to the current proposal that women are also playing, that it's a mixed... Format. Yeah, and, and and probably by making it mixed, it would be a little less serious. You you wouldn't be treating it like I guess it, it would it would be sort of half, like Hopman Cup, kind of halfway between the, the the World Cup, you know, ultimate climax type of event, and and just an exhibition. Yeah, I mean, I think this this could work out. I, I I'm, I'm not. 100% sure what, what to make of it and what uh, the, the main advantages and disadvantages disadvantages would be. But I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit similar to Carl. I'm also a fan of these team events because I, I love um, thinking about who, who will play against whom and what are the odds if they have this lineup and this lineup. And I think these team events, they have a, their own excitement. So I would definitely love to, to, to see something like this where the top players really compete and they not, they don't get forced to do it because they get some big amount of money if they compete. So I think they, they should have some kind of intrinsic motivation and that's that's hard to achieve definitely as we see because in the current Davis Cup format it doesn't really work out as, as we would hope to. And yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the proposal you just mentioned for actually Carl's idea I mean, would be, I think it could have a better chance of actually working out and not taking it 100% serious and somehow players maybe just competing for a little bit more of, of fun also. And, and yeah, that, that could work. Yeah, I, I, what I always end up thinking whether it's a small proposal like like a fifth set tiebreak or, or a big proposal like the one where, that the ITF is talking about now is I'm not sure if there's any possible configuration of Davis Cup that would get the top players to play much of the time. I mean, it's just their bodies are, are, are have so many demands placed on them. I mean, for someone like Federer, just from a media perspective, there's so many demands on his time uh, that... To, to think that you can dream of anything short of $5 million paydays, I, I think that that might just be unrealistic. I mean, it, it, it might be that the level of, of participation we're getting in Davis Cup now, it might be as good as you can expect to do unless you have some complete overhaul of the whole ATP, ITF relationship, and maybe you could get more ranking points for Davis Cup or something like that. But it seems like for the most part, most players want to play. And outside of these few top guys who are such box office draws, um, they do generally try to play. They, they show up, they, they, they play for their home crowd, and they seem to have a good time. They seem to bring really high-quality tennis. And that's what always makes me skeptical of the, the next big plan to fix it is, are we really going to do better? And if, if we aren't necessarily going to do better and get more top players to play, then why are we throwing away all this good stuff like 
giving home fans opportunities to watch really high-level tennis that they might never get to see otherwise, um, or, or some of these dramatic moments like the, the, the five setters that last five hours and end up with David Ferrer stretched out on the court. Uh, this is, it, it's a lot to, to gamble, I think, on the chance that maybe a few more stars would be interested in playing a different kind of event in November. That's, that, that's generally my take that it, 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 I'd like to see some, I'd like to see some, maybe not proof, but I'd like to see some more evidence that this is really going to be better. And then I, I don't know if there is any. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I just want to point out, I mean, everyone is looking at the big four and if it's always this big, this big discussion if the big four are playing. I, I would love to see maybe to, to, to know how many of the players except the big four are playing Davis Cup. I think it's, it's higher than we, as you also suggested, I think it's the actual number of players playing Davis Cup is higher than we might suspect. So that's, that's something. So if in some time in the future the big four are gone, I think it, it won't be such a big discussion if, if the top players are playing because most of them actually are playing anyway. And, and then again, as you also said, these, any tennis fan has this memory of this epic, dramatic Davis Cup match he watched years ago. And these are happening regularly. I mean, the Germany-Spain um, tie from this weekend is the best examples with two four-hour-plus matches, the doubles, and, and uh, the Cole Schreiber-Ferrer um, match. I mean, I mean this is, these are just the moments you, you want to remember, and I don't know exactly if they want to play best of three or best of five in this World Cup-style format. I don't know if you know, but I would assume it's I best think, of three. Yeah, I believe it's all best of yeah. three. So, yeah. I mean, I'm also one of the, of the guys who loves to see these epic matches. And yeah, that's, that's also essentially my take on this. And the, the date at the very end of the season, I think, is, is also everyone tries to get some rest and already thinks maybe about getting prepared for the next season. So yeah, I also have a hard time seeing this being a success. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid we are likely to find out what happens. And it sounds like the, the, the people voting on this are, are leaning heavily in the direction of, of okaying the new plan, at least the, the rumors that I've heard. I don't really have any inside information, but it seems like we're headed in that direction. And it, it would be a pretty, a pretty radical change to undergo. But, but yeah, we, we will see. I mean, as, as you said, Petra, it's, it, as analytics guys team sports are actually a bit more interesting than individual sports. There's just, there's, there's so many more factors. You can look at the contribution of individual players. You can look at possible matchups and it, it, it does make things more interesting. So maybe there's a, a, a slight benefit there that it'll give us more to do when we're, when we're forecasting results and things like that. Um, but I don't, I don't know if that's enough. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see how, how that all pans out. So as we're approaching the, the one hour mark here, let's, um, let's wrap up episode 22. Petr, thank you so much for joining me for your inaugural appearance on the Tennis Abstract podcast. Yeah, thanks for, uh, and for inviting me. Of course. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Petr, he has uh, guest written a few posts on the Tennis Abstract blogs. So you can find him there. He's also at, on Twitter at the letter S, Pete, 
score, or no, SP core. There we go. It's like the word score, but with Pete after the S. Uh, so he doesn't really want you to follow him on Twitter, or he would have picked an easier name to, uh, to spell out on the air. But we're both trying to cut back on Twitter, so maybe there's no reason to follow us anyway. Of course, I'm Tennis Abstract at Twitter, and I'm also at TennisAbstract.com. If you've listened this long, even though I didn't identify myself in the beginning, you probably knew who I am. But um, thank you, Petter. Thank you, everyone, for listening thus far. This has been episode 22 of the Tennis Abstract podcast, and we'll see you next time.